as I got older and more conservative in my views, that perspective, though, never shifted that we have a responsibility for the world around us, that this is where we get our life energy, this is where we get our inspiration, this is really a gift from God to us, and that we have a responsibility to take care of it. And I think a part of it too, though, is that environmental, from the, the reading and the research that I've done, is that environmental groups have by and large abandoned endorsing Republican candidates and working with Republicans, I think they've kind of written Republicans off. And if you can't continue the conversation and again, come at it from a win-win perspective, it doesn't give you an opportunity to influence the decisions that are being made. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I love how I met Anne-Marie, and we have become great long-distance friends. You'll hear the story in the beginning of the podcast. I specifically sought her out as someone with different political views. Actually, one very good friend of mine, as an aside, is what anyone would call a climate skeptic. Yet he knows climate issues better than nearly anyone that I know. And I've learned a lot from him. I do not want a bubble on this podcast of people who just simply agree with me or that everybody agrees together. So I hope that this conversation with Emery is the start of a pattern. She describes herself as a green Republican. She says there aren't many of her. So if you also think that there aren't many of them, I hope that this episode broadens your horizons as it did mine. I'll be frank. I would not balance issues as she does. But frankly, I also don't see the behavior of a lot of people on the left so consistent with their environmental values. I don't see almost any Americans polluting less going out of their way to do so. So I disagree with a lot of people on the left with their stated environmental values and their actual actions. I have a lot of disagreement there because I don't see a lot of consistency between what they say their environmental values are and how they actually act. I don't think that people like her are rare, but I do think that they are less heard and less welcome among people acting on the environment. So I hope that this episode broadens your horizons. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Anne-Marie Heidingsfelder. Did I say it right? You did. <laughs> and I want to start off with how we met. If that's, It's a little bit of a story here, and then I'm going to get to you, and maybe you can say a little bit about yourself. So I live in lower Manhattan, and it's virtually all Hillary Clinton supporters around here. And there was an election recently, a couple of years ago, in which Hillary Clinton lost, and everybody here was totally surprised by it. And as was all the media, everything, there was no sign of Trump support anywhere around here. And I don't like being caught by surprise. And I thought this is really interesting. And also the country's going in a direction that I didn't expect. And so I posted a story on Inc where I have a column and I got in trouble for this. I don't know if I told you I got in trouble. My editor was like, Josh. No, no. Yeah, my editor said, Josh, this isn't how Inc works. But the story was already up. 
And it said, if you voted for Trump, I'd like to meet you. And a few people responded. You, Emery, is one of them. And, or you are one of them. And then there was a follow-up article, which I think was Leaders Listen, Crossing the Digital Divide. And I spoke to you and others about what I was just, you know, I wasn't trying to influence, persuade it. I just wanted to hear, like, what was it like from another perspective? And I loved the conversation. And As I did as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then now separately, you are a coach. You coach for sales. You coach for management and leadership. You work with Ken Blanchard, who's been a guest of the show. And yeah. you, you can describe yourself better than I can. Maybe you can describe your background a bit and then what it was like reading my article and, and that conversation that began in, I guess, in late 2016. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm an ex, you know, Fortune 500 executive and I transitioned into a stay at home role when I had my daughter and decided to start a consulting and a coaching practice. I ended up going back to school. I've got an MBA um, and all those years of corporate experience and decided to put that to good use in my own business, you know, as, as a coach. And through the years, ended up doing a considerable amount of leadership development and sales coaching, as you mentioned, and uh, all the while raising my daughter. And also, though, uh, simultaneously, I kind of lead this alter life and I'm extremely politically active. I am what you would consider a political junkie. In fact, I couldn't sleep last night thinking about the whole Brett Kavanaugh situation. <laughs> so I was up a couple of times during the night thinking about that. So as a result, though, and, and, and I'm a voracious learner, I'm a voracious reader. So I'm out there and I'm not only in leadership development and in my personal life or personal development, but politically as well. And that's how I came across your article. I'm sure there was probably a link, you know, either through Twitter or some social media that, you know, that I read in terms of, you know, getting information on what you had had written. And so not only do I like to read about it, but I like to respond on social media as well. You know, I do, I, you know, do a considerable amount of that too. So I think that's how you and I ended up meeting was I had commented, you know, on that, on that interesting article that you had written. And I was so, I found our subsequent conversation so refreshing because you get this perception that people, you know, across the aisle aren't really interested in you as a conservative and what you think and how you feel and how they tend to typically label you. And so I was just really, uh, it was such an eye opener, Joshua, to talk to you and find out person to person, that a lot of what we see and what we hear out there isn't really applicable on a more personal level when you can get that, that the one-on-one connection. Yeah, I think there was a, a bit of a benefit that I got because it was after, since it was post-election, there was no point in influencing one way or the other. And I really did just want to hear and listen. And I felt like I was something I wasn't getting. And it's something a lot of people weren't getting. And actually, I'm really annoyed because people still that I talk to who are they're still surprised with how things worked out and they still don't try to understand the other people. And I'm like, for one thing, and they still, I get a lot of people that just like, they don't try to understand. They still say things like those people voted against their economic interests or they voted for, they ascribe to them motivation that is not that person's motivation. And they'll say, why would someone do this? Why would someone do that? And they ask it rhetorically as if, the only possible answer is because they're crazy or because they don't make any sense or because they're full of hate or something like that. But if they actually would go to answer that question, why would they? Mm-hmm. The reason there's something inside them is there's some motivation. And now I couldn't answer that for myself. So I was very curious to find that out. The only way I could find out was to ask the people. But 
it's really still annoying to me as someone who works in leadership. If you want to lead someone and you don't know what motivates them. Well, and, and the other thing too is about leadership is that in leadership, you have to make a distinction, right? Between fact and opinion. And I think sometimes people are so married to their opinions and the emotional uh, component of what they believe that they dismiss facts. And so it's kind of curious, and I've mentioned this before, that people who are very effective leaders in business are able to do that, but yet in other aspects of their life, don't bring those same that same methodology or make those same distinctions. Because I think to myself, it's kind of scratch my, my head myself, and I think to myself, gosh, for all these people who are quote, unquote, leader positions, how they are leading and doing the things that they're supposed to, but aren't doing it outside of work escapes me, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. In, in negotiations in business, people expect the seller wants to sell it at a high price. The buyer wants to buy it at a low price. They have a fundamental disagreement about what the value should be. But they don't start arguing. I mean, they might argue with each other, but they don't usually, they don't start insulting the other person and they don't, they don't get all their friends together to like gang up on the other one. Right. And one of the things about being a salesperson is that you co-create with your client a vision, right? And so you both come from an orientation where you both are working towards that, that common vision. And I think what we've lost here is keeping our eye on the vision, right? And what it is that we want for our country and for the people who live here. And really, everybody is really coming from a, a position of self-interest, right? All right. So now you're getting to, I, I want to say why we got in touch now, which is that I just recently interviewed Jonathan Haidt for my podcast. And he's got a current book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And before that was The, the Righteous Mind. And the book, The Righteous Mind talks about how the value of, it's not just getting other people's views, but he talks about conservatives versus liberals and how they have different sets of values, what he would call moral foundations. And that if you don't, understand the other person's moral foundations. You don't really know where they're coming from. And so it had been a couple of years since we last spoke. And Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, this reminds me of what I contacted you and your, like people who disagree with me, why I contacted them in the first place. And I wasn't really sure what, I guess when I spoke to you, it wasn't after the election, we didn't speak about the environment, but this time Mm -hmm. I didn't have the podcast then. So now I have this podcast on leadership in the environment. When you think of the environment, what do you think of? What, What does the environment mean to you? You know, I've always been very pro-environment, you know, ever since I was a kid. You know, my my mother brought me up to be very pro-environment. I think she recycled in the early 1970s before recycling was even a thing, right? She'd never throw away anything usable. You used it over and, and would multi-purpose it in order to you know, really not throw it in the trash. And uh, she was a voracious reader and would show me articles about, you know, different testing that the army would be doing. And, you know, just really gave me a perspective about how you really needed to educate yourself about what was going on out there and that the world was a beautiful place and that we're stewards of the environment. And we have a responsibility. And I really took that through uh, a Jesuit education education that I had at Boston College, where again, it's all about social responsibility. And as I got older and more conservative in my views, that perspective, though, never shifted, right? That we have a responsibility for the world around us, that this is where we get our life energy. This is where we get our inspiration. This is really a gift from God to us, and that we have a responsibility to take care of it. 
And does that differ? Is it, you said as your views got more conservative, that didn't change. So does that mean that there's a conflict or is there, I mean, do you need to reconcile it with your political views? You know, and I I think I've mentioned this before as well, but I've I've kind of coined what I consider to be a new term and that is a green Republican. I I Googled it and there is no such thing as a green Republican, but I like to think that I have basically integrated my perspective on the environment with the policies that I support and the affinity that I have with more conservative political leanings. So I think, I think most of the people listening to this podcast, I hope that I have a broad range of listeners, but I suspect that because the word environment is in there, that it probably tends to be more liberal listeners. Mm-hmm. And do you mind describing your political views? No, not at all. I mean, I'm, I'm socially conservative. I'm very pro-business. I'm very, you know, pro-economy. I'm uh, very pro-national security. I'm very pro-quality of life for the people who are living here, which means that sometimes we have to make some hard decisions about, you know, how we address certain issues. But at the same time, you know, I am still very pro-environment. And so, and it's interesting because I don't think people are aware that there are, I don't want to say there's a lot of Republicans, but there are Republicans out there who have, who really do believe, for example, in man-made climate change and have, you know, research and environmental groups as part of their staff where they're doing investigatory work or they're doing, you know, legislative, you know, work in that vein. And so there, when you look at conservatives, there is a range of opinions along the continuum as there isn't any group. But sadly, I think there's, you know, people like to generalize. And so they look at conservatives and they sort of lump us all in the same category as, you know, people who are just um, intent on, I don't know, making money or growing business to the detriment of all the other facets of life. (laughs) Sadly. It's hard for me not to ask, are there people like that, that you, that are in your community? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and it's interesting because when you connect one-on-one with people, you realize, you know, you know, as I said, that those generalizations don't apply. So it's kind of interesting because I live here in California. I'm in Sonoma County, probably one of the most liberal, you know, places you could possibly live outside of where you're living, right? But yet the people that are in my circles are all conservative. And these are people who are all very uh, interested in environmentalism, you know, and doing things for the environment. You know, there are Girl Scout leaders that, you know, spearhead recycling projects. I mean, there's a, a whole variety of things that, that go on uh, on a very low grassroots level. And these are people who are conservatives. So how do you guys look at, the, at people who vote the same way as you do, but are, when they balance business and the environment, well, to a large extent, those things overlap and business interests and environmental interests over, uh, are coincide. But to some extent, they disagree. Certainly, in, it seems to be in coal, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you interact with people who vote similarly to you, but view environment differently? Not really. I don't think anybody wants to see drilling off the coast of California out here. You know, we really value our coastline. But the thing is, at the same time, we want to see the United States be energy independent, right? 
So it's all about the art of compromise, right? And, and working collaboratively to come up with solutions. And so maybe it doesn't mean that we do extensive drilling, but we do a small amount of drilling in a very, you know, remote area, you know, away from the beauty of Santa Barbara or something along those lines. But, you know, I think everybody acknowledges that there's some sort of, there are are compromises that you need to make, that you can't kind of be 100% one way or 100% another way. So you can love the environment and want to protect the environment, but you need to balance that with the other priorities that we have as a country as well. To me, one of the big things that really gets me is I feel like there's huge growth to be had in wind and solar and renewables and that whoever takes the lead on technologies and getting the market share is going to have some big advantages. And I feel like we're really, the United States, from a business perspective, we're doing the best we can, but I feel like without the support from the, I I feel like we're not getting support from the federal government in those areas that we could. And we're losing ground in something in, in markets that seem to me numbering in the billions of people who, who could use these things. Yeah. And I think a part of it too, though, is that environmental from the, the reading and the research that I've done is that environmental groups have by and large abandoned endorsing Republican candidates and working with Republicans. I think they've kind of written Republicans off. And if you can't continue the conversation and again, come at it from a win-win perspective it doesn't give you an opportunity to influence the decisions that are being made, right? So honestly, I think that there were so many regulations that were put in place that were so onerous during the Obama administration that we may be in a position right now where we're maybe overcorrecting. But again, you know, you see what the results are in terms of, you know, the increase in GDP, right? So if people did want to influence, writing someone off and, and lowering the communication seems ineffective. I, I've never seen that. It's rarely effective unless you're just totally authoritarian. And what would work more effectively? What would, I mean, what would you suggest? Because I think from a lot of people's perspective around here, they would say they just don't listen or they're just like they would block everything or, I mean, what would be more effective? What was missing? You know, well, and the thing is, is that, you know, there are conversations that go on on different levels, right? The conversations that we have on local levels is certainly different from the conversations that we're having on a national level. And I don't pretend to be so insightful that I can come up with these big national solutions that that really need to, you know, be addressed or come into play to, to get those conversations going. But I do know that, you know, people should continue to work together and converse on a local level, you know, for all of these shared goals that we have, right? So we have shared goals. So you take California, for example, right? We have shared goals of wanting affordable housing, wanting to protect the environment. And so if you get people together and you're talking about that, you've got these shared goals, you're able to better come up, you know, with solutions. And, And the thing is we do it, locally, you know, at the very, very local level, but then, you know, at the state level, there's not a lot of that going on, right? We have a a singular party. So there really aren't those conversations going on at the state level here. Well, it also seems like at the national level, it seems like a lot of things going in unilaterally from the White House. I mean, maybe it looked like that the other way when Obama was in, 
mean, to me, one of the big things is that the air, the water, the land, I mean, I guess the land tends to be national, but the air and the water that we breathe and we drink and we swim in, that that's a shared resource that we can't separate us from other nations and so forth. And so if we don't have some sort of agreement with other nations, then we're all affecting each other. And it seems like that's a very necessary thing, but we've pulled out of Paris and it doesn't seem like we want to engage. And so at the national level, I feel like, um, you know, this tragedy of the commons is, I don't know if people know the tragedy of the commons, but you know, if, if people share a resource and someone benefits from using it up more then everyone gets it. Everyone has a, a motivation to use up more, get personal benefit. But then you, if you use up the commons in the process, then everybody loses. I feel like that's what's happening. And I feel like the United States is disengaging from that international, both internationally and as well as within state to state, it happens too, because, you know, I mean, we get your, we in the East get the, the air comes from you guys over in our direction. So it's interstate almost by definition. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's a problem. You know, I, I come from Massachusetts where we have these beautiful beaches in Cape Cod. And if you look at what the air quality is there, it's not good because of all the coal smoke that's blowing from, you know, the Midwest, right. And the, you know, that Ohio area and everything. So yeah, I mean, there are implications, right. That, that needs to be addressed. But I, I think that, you know, when you look at like the Paris Accord and you see what's going on, I think it's part of a general tactic that, that you know, and strategy with the, the new administration, you know, to kind of pull back and regroup. It's kind of a regrouping that we're doing right now. You know, we've kind of been all things to all people and it really hasn't benefited us in a, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, and things have happened that have really taken advantage of us as a country in terms of, you know, resources that we've put out there or money or aid or whatever. And so I think it's just really a time to, for reassessment and, and regrouping. Because to me, it looks like a retreat. I don't mean retreat in a, in a military sense, but uh, like a, it doesn't seem like we want to re-engage. It looks like we want to say, look, we're not a part of this. We're doing our own thing. Yeah. And I don't know how big a priority it is, Joshua. Sadly, I don't know how big of a priority it is because there are so many other priorities right now, right? With national security. And now that the environment is, is really smoking to, you know, to keep it that way. Well, you know, I the economy's think, doing well, right? And so yeah, you know, what you actually said was the environment is really smoking. Oh, which, oh. <laughs> listeners are gonna be like, ha. <laughs> smoking in a good way. It's really moving along. And, you know, and, and, and regulations are, are, you know, aren't strangling small businesses the way they were. And so, you know, I think there are just so many other priorities right now that the effects are more amorphous, right? And so I think that, that there's been a shift towards working on things that really have um, a direct implication in people's lives, Whereas, you know, climate change and the environment, the benefits are more longer term, they're more amorphous, people don't feel them every day. And so I think that, you know, you know, the administration is working on things that really directly affect people's lives every day. And, and, and the thing is, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, you look at Stephen Covey's uh, The uh, Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, you have to keep your eye on these things that are important, but 
may not be as urgent, right? Because at some point it, it, we are going to have an urgency about it and then we're going to be behind the eight ball. And I don't have an answer for that, sadly. I mean, the reason I'm doing this podcast, it happened after the election. Before the election, I was doing things personally, mm-hmm. increasingly environmentally. I mean, I was always environmental. I mean, I would, I would always turn off the light when I was in the room and you know that sort of thing. And then the election happened. I thought, oh, man, I see environment as, I think, different than almost everyone. I mean, forget political sides. I think most people view acting on environmental actions as a distraction from what they really want to do. And it's something that it's deprivation and sacrifice. And what I'm hoping to spread is that it's joy, it's discovery, it's growth, it's being in touch with your community, it's being in touch with nature, and Mm -hmm. such a positive. And I feel like to not have that view, I don't get why, I mean, I do get why, but I, I disagree with the view of like, oh, this is like onerous or it's full of regulation when it's, to me, it's, we've been so out of touch. You know, when I was a kid, there were the, the crying, what's called the crying Indian ad, which was when you know, for people who weren't around in the 70s. I remember that. I do remember that. And it was showing a Native American walking around, or one of them is walking, one of them is boating, and, and it's, it's litter on the ground. And then he gets by this roads, uh, like a highway, and people are just throwing trash out the windows of the cars, and, and a single tear comes down his face. And the reason I looked that up recently is that I came across a bar chart in a newspaper uh, in some article that showed global plastic production. And I saw that it was like by decades, going back to maybe the 50s. And before the 70s, the line was like one pixel. That's how big the bar was. And then it's like the next decade, much more, much more, much more. So that everything before, and so I was like, I wonder when that ad was. It was everything before that was like really small. Like the total amount of plastic ever produced in all of human history was roughly what we produce in a week or a month today. And at that time, it was a crying shame. And now- we don't even blink an eye, I mean, every week. And, and sadly, I think people are opt for convenience over, you know, what the right thing is to do, right? And so we have like, you know, all this excess packaging. And then sadly, you know, we do these symbolic things like a, a ban on straws in California. Do you know how little straws, I mean, it's substantial, but how little straws can contribute to the global, I think it's like, 0.4% or something along those lines, right? But everybody feels good because, oh my goodness, now we've banned straws when these are the same people that are buying, instead of you buying from the bulk section at Whole Foods, they're you know buying all this excess packaging at Walmart, right? Yeah. And to me, there's, from a leadership perspective, looking at people's motivations, if I say to you, here's one little thing that you can do it implies that you don't want to do it. And you may, even if you do get the, even if it was something bigger than straws, even if you got compliance on this one thing, if you reinforce that they don't want to do it, you're going to lose in a systemic sense. Mm-hmm. People are going to not want to do it more. Whereas what I try to share is that, you know, when I avoided packaged food, I was kind of, you know, I struggled with, because for a little while my food was really bland, but then I learned how to cook. Right. And then I learned how to, now I save money. It's more delicious. I meet my farmers. I go out to the farm. My family, we go out to the farm. So there's more community. And I spend less time cooking and I eat more food, even though I'm getting more definition on my abs. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to share. And that's what I don't get pulling out of Paris is viewing it as onerous and regulation is missing that. Well, I do believe it was the, you know, in fact, I don't have the research or the, the facts in front of me, but I do feel that. It looked as though we were carrying 
the ball in some respects for that, that, that Paris agreement. And so the thing is, is that, you know, yeah, the, the U.S. needs to take a, a leadership position and things like that. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that it really needs to be, you know, yeah, we can curb our CO2 emissions here. But if China and India, right, and some of these developing nations aren't doing the same, then, and, and, and meanwhile, you know, it, it's costing us here at home in terms of, you know, maybe from a business standpoint or something along those lines, then, you know, it's almost like, why continue doing it? I think, and I'm oversimplifying the argument, but I think that's kind of the orientation that they're coming from, right? That is the orientation that they're coming from. And I disagree with it. And, you know, when most people use the term moonshot, they talk about how, you know, we went to the moon and it was this big deal in the middle of the Cold War. And they usually people say moonshot to mean the size of something. And I want to use it in the sense of the positivity. You know, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard, because it brings out one's character. And I would say, to me, it seems like if we all got together, I'll just say it, however it comes out, and I hope people know what I mean. If we get together as a nation and say, our values are we want to, in an environmental sense, you know, we, want, we don't want love canals burning and all this pollution and stuff. We also want to take, and from a business sense, we want to take the lead on solar on renewables and things like that. And if others don't follow us, that just makes them look bad. That's, you know, it's not lead. But it doesn't make them look bad. That's the problem. (laughs) But it doesn't, there isn't any pressure to bear on them. You know, if you put these, these goals in, you know, at the end of the day, what really incentivizes behavior is when people are hit in the pocketbook, right? And that goes for countries and it goes for individuals. So when you want to alter behavior, and especially, you know, if you want to get more of a, a gra- grassroots interest in what the U.S. is doing from an environmental standpoint, people aren't going to do it from an altruistic sense. Because if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of people are really still just concerned with food and shelter, right? They're not there yet in terms of the whole self-actualization and what comes with being more altruistic. And so it has to hit people in the pocketbook that, you know what, if you're wasteful, it's going to cost you more. And sadly, I think that's how you get people interested in making the changes that need to be made from from the ground up. Well, that's what I mean by the moonshot, because Mm -hmm. no one benefited financially from going to the moon. I mean, maybe something like Kang. Right. And, you know, some people, some of the suppliers to NASA, but mostly that was tax. Mm-hmm. Support all these scientists and engineers figuring this stuff out, but I think there was a huge benefit to Neil Armstrong on the moon, which, by the way, was on my birthday, right? Uh, two years before, but July twentieth, and that's the thing that I think. And there are lots of things where we, as a nation, in all nations, I think people are very proud of certain things that are culturally not necessarily profitable, mm-hmm. but that they care about. I mean, when smoking was banned in New York City. Most restaurants, the voices that I heard were saying that if you ban smoking in bars and restaurants, then people are not going to go to the bars and restaurants and we're going to lose money. And that's the opposite that happened. That mm-hmm. people, I mean, the, the opposite happened, but they didn't know that at the time. They thought, I think everyone is glad, perhaps not Philip Morris or Altria or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everyone's glad that that happened. And actually, after that happened, there was what was the deal? New Jersey was considered like Hoboken and Jersey city. I think they were thinking about 
doing the band before New York would, they didn't. And then after New York did, they realized, oh, we're losing people to New York because New York has a band. Mm-hmm. So this is regular. I mean, on the face of it, it seems like regulation and it seemed like it would hurt people in the pocketbook, but in the end it benefited everyone. And I feel like that's, you know, smoking is one of the changes that I've seen in my lifetime that tells me that we can turn the corner on environmental stuff that mm-hmm. people used to look at smoking as Humphrey Bogart. Mm-hmm. And now I think they associate it more with cancer. And I feel like that's something that could happen. That's my vision for the environment is that people just, without thinking about it, you consider who's affected by this and there would be some regulation, but it would be, it would come about through popular support through democratic means. Yeah. And, well, and the thing is, is that, you know, when you look at, you know, social responsibility, you know, I think companies can play a role where, you know, companies are getting more socially responsible in so many ways, but the same companies that are putting out, you know, diversity training, these are the very companies that have packaging up the yin-yang, right? So how socially responsible is that? (laughs) I've been invited to do a, um, you know, the word is getting out about my famous no packaging vegetable stews. And so this company has, has brought me in to do, you know, I do a lot of corporate speaking. This time I'm doing corporate speaking and making dinner yes. with no packaging. So it's all local stuff. Well, the local is, I mean, it's all stuff that I get from my CSA and from the farmer's market. And there's got, not going to be anything to throw away at, at the end of it. And everyone's going to find out how delicious it is. So they're organizing this thing and they say, and we're going to give everyone a mug for coming. And I said, what's the mug for? And they're like, so people don't have to throw stuff away. I was like, I've never been to someone's place that they didn't have more mugs than they needed. Right. To say we're going to have less stuff by giving people more stuff is totally backward. Like what happened to be the change you wanted to see in the world? Right. And they're like, use less plastic bags. Here's a canvas bag. And giving it away for free makes everyone think, oh, there's more canvas bags where this came from. So they treat what's supposed to be reusable as trash. Have you had any idea how many canvas bags I have? I use them for scent closed and goodwill. I've got so many of them. Yeah, you can't throw a rock at a, at a fair without getting a canvas bag and a plastic water bottle. And I shop like I shop at Goodwill a lot. You know, I get my stuff at the, at the thrift shop, and there's like they're flooded with all the stuff of like right. how many reusable coffee cups or coffee mug things with the lids and things. They're all over the place. But consumers have to demand it. You know, it, it has to be the type of thing where you know consumers vote with their dollars, right? where they have to really demand that these, you know, changes take place. And it's very hard. That doesn't resonate in communities that have been economically devastated because they no longer have the manufacturing base, like places in the Midwest. So you're really not going to get that level of interest and that level of activism until you get people in a place where they feel economically secure, right? You know, with economic advancement comes better education, right? And with better education comes greater awareness. One thing leads to another. And so it's one of those things where economically, we've got to make the changes that we need to, to get a more robust middle class here so that people are feel secure enough in their day-to-day lives where, again, they can make great educational choices, become more aware, and become more activist, right? Well, for most cases, I would agree. For environmental stuff, I have not found that education, education for people who are already predisposed helps. I think that'll get them to act. But 
I, I've not seen that education has led to widespread change in people's behavior. And I see a lot of people for whom awareness ends up being, instead of a stepping stone on the way to action, becomes their ending point. And so they say, well, I'm aware of these things while they do the polluting things. Mm -hmm. And what I've found, I mean, a few things that work, I think, more effectively, like the greatest predictor of people getting solar is if your neighbors have solar. Now, that's not changing education. That's, that's, I mean, we follow, we tend to follow our communities. We tend to follow the people that we consider leaders. Okay, first, let me not confuse anyone. I support education. I support science. I support legislation when it follows a democratic process. But I think that's influenced the, most of the people it's going to, and it's not changing people who, who have other interests. And I think what's preventing change is that there are a lot of leaders, people in leadership position, people who are influential people, who themselves are not changing. I mean, I can certainly pick Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio as big examples of people. They say everyone should do this while they justify not that. Mm -hmm. And as long as people, so the education is there, the science is there, but their own personal behavior is not there. And I think people tend to follow behavior more than they follow, you know, people are going to follow what a leader does as much as what the leader says. Yeah, and I do agree with you. You almost have to make it cool to do, right? That's you know, what I'm trying to do. You know, you, you know, people do follow the pack, <laughs> right? And so you do need to make it cool to do, which, which makes me think, you know, where are those public service announcements that, you know, we used to have? And where are the mechanisms that, getting, that are getting the message out there? It has to be repeated and it needs to be repeated often, right? Well, that's where this podcast comes in. So now, mm-hmm. I'm, now I've t- you've segued again. <laughs> I mean, I think I talked to you before when we, when we were setting up the meeting that I have people who are guests and I ask them to take on a personal challenge to live by their values in something that they might not have already been doing so that listeners can hear there are other people doing this. You know, so if there are people who are Trump supporters who are listening to this or conservative uh, who lean conservatively and they think, well, you know, all these other people do stuff, but I'm not one of them, then I want to give you the chance well, just to do something. I mean, you talked about what the environment meant to you. And I heard it was family. I heard it was caring. Can you say again, when you think about the environment, what is it for you? Well, like, you know, and it's being a citizen of the world, right? I mean, you have a personal responsibility. I feel you have a personal responsibility to be a citizen, a good citizen of the world and a good steward of the environment that we've been blessed with. But getting back to real quick about, you know, like conservatives and how they address the environment. I don't know anybody conservative, any of my friends and associates and everything who doesn't recycle or aren't acutely aware of, or isn't acutely aware of the environment and does their part. I mean, I don't know anybody who has a blatant disregard for the environment who's conservative. But on a community level, in Massachusetts is a very liberal state, right? I lived back there in 2003 to 2005, and my community did not recycle. Here I was, I'm probably the lone Republican in my neighborhood, and I'm putting all of my recycling in the car so that I can take it to the dump. And meanwhile, my neighbor's trash cans are overflowing with cardboard boxes and everything, and these are the, these are the Elizabeth Warren fans, So go figure, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, you know, it it probably, you know, comes down to, you know, how you were raised and and what it is that, that, that you really value, I guess, right? Yeah, it really gets me that there's a lot of people who talk about environmental things and... Well, they want you to do it, you know? They make the argument because they think you should be making the changes and that you should do it. 
One of the, the things that Republicans find so maddening is the hypocrisy of the progressive left, where they want all these changes made, but they don't want to be the ones that, they want you to make them. So for example, you know, they want more affordable housing, but do not put it in Malibu, right? So they want you to, you know, be more circumspect in terms of, you know, your practices when it comes to recycling and driving an electric car, but don't tell me I can't take my private plane all over the United States where I need to go, right? Yeah. Mr. Benahoff from from salesforce.com or whoever you are, right? And and again, it's the hypocrisy that that Republicans find so maddening. Yeah. For me, I find that I don't see that as a political issue. I just see that as everyone. Because I agree with you that uh, what you said about conservatives, that you don't know anyone who doesn't care about the environment. Oh, I don't. I don't. I, I, I find that as well. But I also see, so that puts them in the same boat of saying, I care about the environment, but also not, I mean, they might say, well, we have to balance this and we have to balance that. But they also fly all over the world at a moment's notice. And they all, like, I, I feel that is an American thing of choosing comfort and convenience over stewardship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I probably earlier would have lopped it at Republicans or conservatives, but I agree. I see it as much, I see it independent of political persuasion. Yes, I would agree with you. We consume hundreds of times more than others. And that would be great if it translated to happiness, but we got opioids and we got people taking Adderall and we got all this, like all these issues mm-hmm. that suggest that maybe these things aren't helping us as individuals, as people, as, a commu- as communities, as a, as a nation, that we're obese, we got diabetes. That seems like pretty similar to the packaged food and the food that's doing that seems pretty similar to me. So I'm trying, I mean, what I'm trying to do with this podcast is change the tone from deprivation, you know, changing is deprivation sacrifice, or it's somehow against what you really like, which is somehow fast food. And I want to get people feel it, to discover what I discovered. And there's nothing special on me, which is that eating packaged food doesn't make your life better. Living fast and loose, like just living a jet setter lifestyle, having family all over the world means you spend less time with them, not more. Mm-hmm. And I love family. When I was a kid, I was like, ah, I'm going to get away from my parents. But now I really like it. I like responsibility. I like accountability. It makes my life better. Sorry if I'm getting uh, too... No, no. But the thing is, is that, you know, as a, as a leadership development coach, right. Or as, as a sales coach, you know, I'd suggest that, you know, people who are interested in making changes, you know, take one, two or three small things that they can do that they can be very passionate about and not only do them, but evangelize about them. Right. You know, commit to be an activist about it. Because that's where the momentum is going to come from. It's going to come from the consumer, right? It's going to come from the individual user of, you know, and, and person living in the environment. You know, I, I think to try to, def, you know, depend on, you know, a top-down strategy is not a good one. Plus, you know, we're in, a, we're in a society where we don't want the federal government telling us what to do, right? I mean, people really need to take that personal accountability and spread it around. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, 
and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So given what environment means to you with stewardship and with all the things that you said, is there something that you would be, that you haven't done that you're thinking about doing? And I always put in the, the caveat, not the caveats, but the, um, it doesn't have to change or fix all the world's problems overnight, mm-hmm. but it can't be something you're already doing. And it can't be telling other people what to do. It has to be something that you do. Right. Something personally, like a personal goal for, goal for myself. Yeah. And the size of it doesn't matter. It's right. Just, yeah. But I am getting more caught in it. And actually, and it's kind of interesting because of what the lag time has been since you and I first talked and what was it, 2016? Yeah, it would have been just after the that I'm still struggling with reducing my individual packaging. <laughs> so it's something that I have become very conscious about and it's something that I feel like I'm not there yet. And so it's something that I'm just really trying to make, you know, a, a, a bigger effort and a bigger impact on the amount of packaging I'm bringing into my house. And I really noticed it, Joshua, because I lost my house in the Sonoma County wildfire. So I had to buy a lot of things and replace a lot of things. And holy cow, the packaging that the stuff came with it was unbelievable. I mean, you can't believe, you know, boxes that I still have on the, the side of my house, for example. But and I'm, I'm trying to make others more aware of the packaging situation as well. I thought that was a very admirable goal that you had. It was something that, but see, but see, that's how, that's how changes are made, right? And talking to you, somebody completely different from the political spectrum, see the influence that you had on me just in that one small, it's not a small area, but in that one area. Yeah. I mean, I, a week or two ago, I threw up my garbage for the first time in 16 months, but I had no, there were, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, was that a goal or do I think I'd achieve that? I would think I wouldn't have made it a goal. I would not have imagined it achievable. But at first it took, at first I went from maybe I'd throw out the garbage, I don't know, once a week. Then it was like once every two weeks Then it was once every mm-hmm. month, two months. And now I think the next time will be significantly longer. And my peers, I'll send you links to previous guests, including B Johnson is like a big one. She, her family of four produces a jar full of trash per year. Isn't that amazing? And the other thing too is reusing things. So for example, I had a whole house full of of items that I needed to get. I went down to, I go to the local consignment shop. I've gone to antique stores with, you know, and bought vintage glass. You know, I can't see going and, you know, buying new things with all the energy that it takes to produce new things when there are perfectly good old things out there, quite frankly, that need to, that need homes. So it sounds like this is a change that you, you're interested in making. Can we make Oh, uh, and it's something that I've been promoting. So I know a lot of people that lo- lost their homes in the wildfire. And I'm like, hey, go to the, the vintage store. You'll not only get something, you know, you'll get something very unique, really well-made, inexpensive, you know, aside from the whole environmental impact piece of it. And I would add to that, this is on my side, but I'd also say, or consider not getting something and doing without Oh, we have, we have a few things. Most of us have a few things we don't need. Oh, and and it really came to light when I lost my home because you've got to figure I had what, 30 years worth of accumulation. And so now when you look at what I have, it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, it's really amazing. In fact, Bob and I, my husband and I always said we had too much stuff, just too much stuff. And it's, you know, stuff people give you, you know, deals you can't pass up you know, you got kids, you end up accumulating more things. It's, you know, it, it really borders on the ridiculous. And the flip side of it is not having those things to me. I don't know how you view it, but to me, when I get rid of something that I don't need, 
the word freedom is what's in my mind. Oh, I'm a purger. I've always purged. I mean, for as much stuff as we had, I used it all. I used it all. I mean, like I had two sets of China, I would use both sets, but you know, but the thing is, is that, um, I don't keep anything I don't need. I mean, if I don't need it, it goes, it goes to goodwill. And to me, it's also the big, one of the big challenges and what makes me feel like I'm swimming upstream in American culture today is that you have to refuse so much and you have to refuse multiple times. You're like, I don't need a bag. Uh, no, I, I appreciate it, but I, I don't need the bag. Nope. Nope. Please. I, I would like no bag. Thank you. I have a bag here. Well, and I tell my husband, do not bring one more water bottle in this house. I don't care if they are free. Do not take it. <laughs> my husband is always like, oh, it's free. Well, you know, free comes with a cost, my friend, right? This is what we're saying now is reinforcing my view that it, I really don't view this as a, it is political in the political world. It's a political issue, but. From a policy standpoint. Everyone agree. Well, anyway, can we make a smart goal, something specific and measurable and attach a time to it? For me personally? Yeah. Oh, golly. Yeah. Let, let's do that. Okay. Well, the thing is, I, I feel like that resonated with the coach in you of like, I don't know how I'm going to measure it though, because I would like to make a bigger impact on what I'm doing personally versus the packaging. Maybe how's this for a smart goal? What I will do is that, you know, I do admit sometimes I will go to a closer grocery store and buy things not in bulk because it's easier and faster. And let's do this. I can make a goal to, which I have started meal planning better. So what I'll do is actually plan my trips to the grocery store during the week instead of making them more spontaneous, right? I can plan my trip on Mondays to Whole Foods and buy what I need in bulk. And is that bringing your own containers? Instead of, yeah, because for as much as I try to buy bulk, I don't buy everything in bulk. Because as I said, my week is busy. I don't, I haven't meal planned real well. And so I've been, you know, running to Safeway and just picking up quinoa, like in the package. So with more thought, I've been meal, I, I just started meal planning last weekend again. So what I'll do is make that grocery store run on Mondays. And that way I can do it at Whole Foods and just get what I need for the week and buy it, and buy it all in bulk. Okay. So the specific goal is that for some period of time, uh, you will only, the things that you can get in bulk, you'll get in bulk and refill. I'm going to say six weeks. You know why? Because it takes six weeks to form a new habit. Okay. So then is it okay with you if we schedule our next conversation in six weeks? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's coinciding with the detox that I happen to be doing. So this is great. Okay, so detox internally. So I'm, de- so I'm detoxing my my grocery shopping as well as my my physical self. Okay, I hope that this gives you the chance to do the I think the evangelizing, the the experience and sharing on your end that you described as being effective. Yes, and I and I post for business, I post for personal. I have a pretty big circle here. I have a you know some leadership positions at school, uh, my daughter's school and church, and so yep, I will yep. Make a, make a point of, in fact, I should probably put a goal to that too, in terms of how many people a day I can talk to and just let them know what I'm doing. Because let's put it this way. If you saw a great movie, wouldn't you tell people about it, right? You'd tell, hey, listen, I just saw a great movie, something that you might want to see. You're so talking you, about my food. I so, can't. When you're doing, yeah, so when you're doing something that you consider just great and awesome for the environment, you should be excited enough to want to share it. So it's I'll, like uh, you're ahead of me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so right. I'll make make a point of at least I'm going to say I 
that I could talk to two people a day. I mean, I could be in the grocery store at the checkout and you know how you're chatting with the, uh, with the, with the cashier. That's a person to tell, Hey, guess what? I made a vow for six weeks. I'm buying everything in bulk. And then around you is going to hear. I have my standard thing when they, when they keep trying to give me bags, I say, I say as a joke, I'm trying to save the world, but then I often say no bag. I'm not good at polluting. I let other people do that. Well, well, but here's the whole bad conundrum is, 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 and I hate to go on. I know we probably need to cut off, but okay. So the Institute, the bit, the, the, the ban on the bags, right? I actually use the grocery bags because I use them for trash because they're biodegradable. But what it's basically done now has shifted people to using plastic garbage bags. What's okay. So that's great. So meanwhile, we're saving all these bags in the grocery store. And now what we've done is we've incentivized people to uh, who maybe aren't as conscientious to use these plastic garbage bags. Well, I can't speak to everyone right now, but between you, me, and the listeners, I'll give you my solution for that. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Because I compost everything compostable. And after that, everything's dry, not wet. Mm-hmm. So I put the recycling in the recycling, and what's left is the landfill stuff. It's all dry. I just use a canvas bag. Oh, a canvas bag. Okay. Yeah. And now my building, I walk down the hall and dump that down the chute, but I don't use plastic bags. And people say, oh, but I use this for, I use, like when they, when they get them from the grocery stores, here they're still free. And they're like, oh, but I use it, I use it, I use it. I turn away every plastic bag I can. Oh yeah, and I don't, I don't. swimming in plastic bags. Mm-hmm. People come over and they use them. And I don't, if I need a plastic bag, I go downstairs in my building, there's the recycling and people put plastic bags there. And I use one of theirs that's basically already in a landfill. Mm-hmm. There's an infinite supply. There's still, sadly, an infinite supply of plastic bags, and I don't need to get a new one. So I refuse bags. I don't know the last time that I accepted a bag that someone offered me, mm-hmm. and my trash goes in a canvas bag. And you know the size of a canvas tote bag. That's the size of a bag that it took me 16 months to fill. That's amazing. That's pretty. That is that is really amazing. <laughs> That's simple. Once you do it, it's for me to put. I can't imagine putting. The way you talk about your husband with the, with the plastic, that's how I would think about putting something compostable into the garbage. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yep. there's no need for plastic bags at home of any sort. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I'll tell you, I just do not like plastic bags. I go and visit my parents, you know, in Cape Cod and, and go to the grocery store and, you know, there they are filling the plastic bags. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like I see people just walking out with like bags and bags. I just want to cry, you know? But again, these are the people, you know, you look at the state of Massachusetts, these are some of the most liberal, progressive people in the, in the United States. And there they are walking out with all their plastic bags. I think that the comfort and convenience transcends political everything. It's yeah. like people just, it's so easy. And I think they feel so, guilty. And if they face up to it. But you have to laugh. Yeah, yeah. they are putting the bags in, in a car with the Hillary bumper sticker. I mean, it's like... <laughs> I think as you talk about them, a little bit of Massachusetts accent is coming out. I think so too. <laughs> so I want to wrap up with, uh, there's plenty of other stuff that we could talk about and I hope we get to in the next conversation. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask to, that's worth bringing up? Oh no, I've, I, enjoy, I enjoy every conversation with you, Joshua. Me, you know, me too. It's really the conversations that I had with you and, the, and a couple others after the election really changed a lot for me. And that's probably why when I read Jonathan Haidt's stuff, I was like, he was showing that what I did this one time was, I hope across, I hope everyone listening to this, you know, even more than 
well, at, on par with whatever environmental changes they make. Also, it's just like, listen, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I can hardly put myself at the top of the list of the people who, are, who, who do this. I, I can just say compared to before, I'm doing more. Yep. And listening is, is, a, is a key leadership skill. So if you want to tie in the whole, you know, leadership skill set, they always say, you know, listen more than you talk. Ken Blanchard, he's always got, he's got good quotes around that, but you should be doing 80% listening and 20% talking. Yeah. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you very much. I look forward and, to talking to you in about six And thanks again for having me, Joshua. It's been my pleasure. I love Emery's enthusiasm. I can't wait to hear her results. The reason I brought her on because I wanted to hear views that I had not heard before, and I did. I hope they were new for you. Again, I have to repeat, although I don't hear liberals reducing their packaging that much. That is, when I see people reduce their packaging, I think it tends to be more liberals, but they're a very small number. If you look at overall liberals, very few of them are changing their behavior, even though they criticize, say, Trump for pulling out of the Paris Agreement. They themselves are way outside the Paris Agreement. I'm not going to name the names of people close to me, but nearly everyone I know, and I know some people are pretty liberal, pollute more than nearly anyone who has ever lived. If that's you, I think there's a lot of potential for growth that I think you'll appreciate acting on. Even if you disagree with Anne-Marie's politics, don't you appreciate hearing the voices of someone that you haven't heard before? Don't you like yourself being heard? If you know political actives, people who organize for politicians or for views that are against mine that you haven't heard on this podcast, or, are you, or if you are one of them yourself, please get in touch with me. I'd love to have them on here because in my view, leadership begins with listening. It begins with soliciting views that you haven't heard before and being able to bring diverse views together. Most of all, I hope that learning about others helps us learn about ourselves. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference, and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.